Well, one of the most popular books on marriage written in the last 25 years uh, is a book I'm sure you've heard of. It's called The Five Love Languages. Anybody heard of that book, The Five Love Languages? I personally have never read the book, but the main point of the book is that all of us speak a different love language or languages, and the secret to love that lasts forever is, is learning our spouse's love language. That's basically the point of the book. You, you need to learn your spouse's love language. In other words, we need to find out what communicates love to our spouse as well as how they tend to communicate love or express love to us. And the author uh, defines and explains what he believes to be the, f- the, the, the five uh, love languages. Uh, number one is words of affirmation. Number two is acts of service. Number three is receiving gifts. Number four is quality time. And number five is physical touch. And so, practically speaking, for some of you men, uh, nothing communicates love to you more than when your wife affirms you with her words or maybe she snuggles up next to you and, and put, wraps her arm around you when you're walking. Uh, for some of you ladies, nothing communicates love to you more than when your husband spends quality time with you uh, or when he washes the dishes or vacuums the house for you, those acts of service. Well, I don't know what your love language is, But based on the pattern that is set by the couple here in the Song of Songs, uh, generally speaking, I think I know what your love language is. What communicates love to a man and what communicates love to a woman is the same for all of us. Men, you ready for this, guys? This is your love language, okay? This is what communicates love. You want to be admired. You want to be admired. And women, you ready for this? You want to be adored, don't you? Come on, don't lie to me. You want to be adored. Men desire respect and women desire love. Men want to be treated like a king and wives want to be treated like a queen. Uh, How do we know that? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, God said through the pen of Paul, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife also must see to it that she respects her husband. Again, God knows exactly what men want, uh, what women want, and he tells guys, hey, love your wife, guys, and gals, respect your husband. Again, another book I've never read, but I think the title nails it. It's simply called Love and Respect. Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich. and uh, that's a very popular, another popular marriage book. Again, I don't know what's in it, but I, again, I think he nailed the title. Whatever he's saying in there, I'm not sure, but I think he nailed the title, Love and Respect. Now, as you read through the Song of Solomon, what stands out the most is the frequent and eloquent verbal interchange between the two lovers as they, as they, as they express their feelings to one another, and, and almost to the point where you're kind of feeling a little awkward, like, okay, I think I shouldn't be here right now. Uh, they're saying things that are a little too intimate for me, la, 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 you know, find a room, whatever, you know. Um, but their relationship exemplifies, I think, the essential and powerful role that communication plays in the marriage relationship, particularly in the areas of romance and physical intimacy. Uh, I think it's, it's not an overstatement to say that marital harmony and, and physical intimacy hinges on what we say or what we don't say. 
What do you think? Would you agree with that? That the marital intimacy um, and harmony really hinges on what we say or what we don't say. And uh, Song of Solomon is in the wisdom literature section of the Bible, right? Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those five books represent the, the wisdom literature. And one of the prevalent themes of, of wisdom literature is the power of our words. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. In other words, this little thing here, right? Your tongue, right? is very powerful. And it can either give life or it can kill. It can murder. And nothing destroys a marriage faster than harsh, mean, critical words. And nothing causes a marriage to flourish faster than sweet, kind, gracious words. Danny Aiken, who wrote a very helpful commentary on the Song of Solomon, said very simply, he said, communication that consists of gracious and kind words is the currency that buys and builds a lasting love relationship. And that's basically what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 when he was talking about uh, communication. He said, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for what? edification or or building up according to the need of the moment so it will give what grace to those who hear in other words uh, one of the foundational principles of of communication is just be gracious to one another just be gracious in the way you talk and even the tone that you use when you talk and i think too many couples start off whispering sweet nothings Right in their dating stage, in their courtship stage, and when they're engaged, and, and then over time they end up saying nothing sweet to each other. And uh, it's, it's very sad. It's, it's really no greater tragedy that I've been exposed to than to see a, a couple who has gotten so um, distant from one another and, and so upset with one another that they, they just can't even say anything nice to each other. They just forgot how to be nice to each other. And uh, this past summer, uh, I came across, well, Kelly uh, reads through uh, every day with uh, Hannah. Hannah reads this as well. This little book called The Quiet Place, Daily Devotional Readings by Nancy Lee DeMoss. How many ladies have this uh, little book, okay? More hands need to raise, okay? I'm glad that those three ladies that raise their hand have this and are reading it. But you, ladies, you all need to have this little book. Uh, I can't tell you how many times... Uh, I'll be, you know, in my office at home and, and, and Kelly will show up with this little blue book in her hand and she says, I think you should read today's entry uh, because they have such a great impact in her, her heart and, and, uh, and, and even in our daughter's heart. And so um, every once in a while, they'll, they'll, she'll give it to me to read. And she did this, um, uh, this last summer when she was, uh, it was July 28th and uh, it, it, this, this entry was called Resurrecting Love. And, and I read this, and, and it just, probably the reason why it stuck out to me is because I had just got done counseling a couple that was just at odds with one another. I mean, they, they, this was the couple that you don't want to be, right, that it just hated each other's guts, and, and they couldn't even be nice to each other. And so, so I, read, I read this, and I, and I thought, wow, this is really profound, and I actually photocopied it and mailed it to them uh, just to encourage them uh, that, and to give them hope um, that, that God, by His grace, could resurrect their marriage, let me just read for you uh, what uh, this, read this story because I think it's, it's so appropriate for so many of us as, as married couples. 
Jeannie and her husband were five or six years into marriage and whatever feelings had once been there were long gone. Hate was not too strong a word to describe what raced through her heart whenever she was particularly angry with him. In a desperate attempt to salvage what little was left of their relationship, they planned a Valentine's getaway and hoped something might spark. It didn't. Yet while forcing their way through a strained, disappointing weekend with no storybook romance to come to their rescue, they did exercise the self-control and presence of mind to make one new promise together. They would stop speaking harshly to each other. It, was, it, was, it just wasn't worth the effort and emotion anymore, nor would they confide and complain to friends saying, do you know what he did? Do you know what she said? Surely they could do that much. Sometimes the big things really do come down to size when we start doing the little things, like not talking cruelly to each other, not unleashing our little put-downs, not giving unkind reports behind their back. At least that's what happened in Jeannie's situation. Six months down the line, they looked up from their once decaying marriage and found that God had indeed resurrected what was dead and dying. Twenty years later, their lives have become a picture of committed, joyful love. Isn't that a beautiful story? Just just a couple making one simple decision. We are not going to speak harshly to each other ever again. And it changed their marriage. And so I think this couple here that we're going to look at again uh, in the Song of Songs tonight provide us with a picture of that committed, joyful love. And we're going to see them tonight as they, as they do throughout the book, trying to outpraise one another or out-compliment one another as they express their mutual admiration and adoration of one another. Again, the woman verbally affirms her respect and her admina- admiration for her, her husband or her man, her husband-to-be in this case, and the man verbally affirms his love and his adoration for her. And again, just to say this, that, that, that praising our partner is an essential ingredient in a healthy marriage. It's a, it's a huge factor when it comes to romance and, and, and physical intimacy. As we're going to see, as you praise your partner, it, it, it turns them on and it leads to good things. Let's just say it that way, okay? Um, uh, in fact, I think it's interesting. If you look up the word intercourse in the dictionary, It's only when you get to the third or fourth definition, like number three, number four, does it ever mention anything regarding sex. So we know the essence of intercourse involves what? Communication, right? And interaction. It's exchanging thoughts or or feelings. And so the point here is that verbal intercourse leads to sexual intercourse. Well, what a couple says and does to one another in the days and the hours before they make love is far more important than what happens when the clothes come off. Uh, in fact, every occasion of physical intimacy in your marriage will be either enhanced or diminished by how well you're doing in the area of loving communication. And so let's look at this at this couple tonight, and again, just to remind you of this, of the book kind of breaks down into to four sections. You've got the courtship phase, uh, you, you've got the consummation phase, you've got the conflict phase, I already mentioned that earlier, and the commitment phase. And here in chapters 1 uh, all the way through chapter 3, verse 5, uh, is, is the courtship phase, the, 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 the dating stage leading up to uh, their wedding night. And so just to keep that in context, that's where we're at, uh, you know, in, the, in this book is we're in this uh, stage before they're married. 
And so, uh, really, the book begins kind of with this, um, uh, <laughs> with, with this uh, just, just out of nowhere, uh, in, in verse 2, uh, we're introduced to this love-struck leading lady who's longing to be kissed and touched by her husband-to-be, and she just comes out of the gate saying, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And so without any warning, this, 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 this woman launches into the sensuous solo in anticipation of, of the wedding night when she would be able to take uh, him into her chamber or he, uh, he would take her into his chamber and, and she would give herself to him. And so, again, all of this is, as commentators would say, is more of a flight of fantasy here. This is not actually happening at the moment. It's more of, a, of an imagining of what's going to happen and, and again, it's, uh, in this, in the, uh, we've talked about this before, that it, the way Song of Solomon is written, it, it, it closes the curtain just at the right time, right? You're seeing something leading in a certain way, and you go, uh-oh, 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 and all of a sudden, the curtain closes. And you're like, whew, I'm glad we got out of that one, right? So that's why I love this, this uh, picture that we've chosen is, is because it's, it's the idea of a veil, right? You, you know some, uh, a loving couple is behind that, but it's veiled. What's going on is veiled, right? In other words, it's very discreet, it's private, and, and so that's the way the Song of Solomon is it kind of keeps the, 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 intimacy, the intimate, most intimate moments here veiled, um, which again is a, is a good reminder of uh, that this is... Um, this area of, of, of physical intimacy between a husband and wife is something that is, is in some sense to be kept private. It doesn't mean we can't talk about it uh, as, as a church, right, as, the, as brothers and sisters in Christ. If it's in the Word, right, it's fair game uh, to preach. And, and uh, I've had uh, some discussions with my wife about uh, is the Song of Solomon meant to just be read and enjoyed as a poem or is it meant to be exposited verse by verse, right? And I'm like, hey, it's in the Bible. It's fair game. I'm going to exposit it, okay? And you can just meditate on it as a little poem if you'd like, but I'm going to exposit it. <laughs> um, but again, it, we have to be very careful and tactful, right, as we do this, um, not to be inappropriate because the book, uh, obviously written by the Spirit of God, uh, is, is holy and pure, and we don't want to make it unholy and impure um, by uh, just maybe some uh, sinful things or thoughts, words that we could say um, as we go through it. But notice starting in verse 5, and this is where we're going to look at tonight, verse 5 all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. That's our text. And, and uh, we, we get a feel here now for the erotic nature of, of sweet, kind, tender, thoughtful words, again, of admiration and adoration. Okay, remember guys, love language, yours is admiration, gals, yours is adoration, right? So guys, remember it's all about you learning to adore your wife. Gals, it's all about you learning to admire your husband. Notice how she begins here. She says in verse 5, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. 
So the the Shulamite here is expressing her insecurity, her her sense of unworthiness to be loved by the likes of Solomon. She's self-conscious about her appearance, which I think is pretty typical, right, uh, of of women. Um, She knows that she's pretty, but not according to the cultural standards of beauty here. She had this dark tan uh, from working outside in the country. She was, uh, I guess you could liken her to a, a Near Eastern Cinderella who was forced to work in the vineyards by her older brothers. And so the hot sun had burned her skin black like the Bedouin tents. And uh, it made, uh, the, the, the tents were made of the black hair of goats. And so she's comparing her skin uh, to those tents. But at the same time, notice she compared her beauty to the tapestries in Solomon's palace. And so her point is that she was so busy tending the vineyards and, and running off the little foxes, which we learn about here uh, pretty soon, that they, she had no time to take care of herself. She, she never went to the salon, right? She didn't have time for a manicure or a pedicure like the, like the, 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 the city girls or, or possibly all the other women in Solomon's harem. Uh, she hadn't been getting her 12-month beauty treatments. If you remember the story of Esther, right, and the way they prepared the, the potential queens for uh, King Ahasuerus, and uh, they had these, this 12-month beauty program, but she wasn't a part of any of that. And uh, notice she mentions these daughters of Jerusalem here in, in verse 5. Uh, these are the young maidens um, that in many ways the book is targeted toward. Uh, some say that the book of Proverbs is targeting young men. That's why the father's constantly saying, my son, my son, my son, my son. And, and that's uh, the dad trying to help his son understand uh, a proper view of, 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 of sexual purity and to avoid that immoral woman. Whereas uh, the Song of Solomon is the book for, of wisdom for young ladies. And so the, the, the female character here, the Shulamite, is addressing the, the young women, these daughters of Jerusalem, uh, who were girls of marriable age but not yet married. These were her friends, uh, possibly the members of her wedding party. And so um, that's, those are the daughters of Jerusalem. So you see her interacting with them from time to time. Uh, and we'll see kind of at the end of this uh, message tonight how she, she charges them and, and, and admonishes them. But again, guys, I think this is an important lesson for us um, to remember how important it is to build up our wives because, okay, let's be honest, that's typically uh, a typical tendency of a woman is they feel self-conscious about themselves, right, and how they look. And, and, uh, and so, you know, like, like I'll pick on my daughter, Hannah, uh, who has grown up to be a, be- a beautiful young lady, in my opinion, and, and she'll always say, Dad I, Dad, I wish I was pretty. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you looking in the same mirror that I'm looking at? And, and, and I'm like following, around, following you around with a shotgun and a big baseball bat, and you're wishing you were pretty, right? And again, it's just this thing that I don't know why it is, right, that, that gals that, uh, just feel self-conscious oftentimes about how they look. And Danny Aiken says it well. He says, how a woman thinks she looks is extremely important to her. She wants to know that she is attractive to the man in her life. But men, we must understand that what she thinks about how she looks matters more to her than what we think about how she looks. A woman's appearance requires great sensitivity and understanding on the part of a man. Men should make sure they praise their wives and build them up. Um, it's the classic scenario, right? You're getting dressed, 
and your wife comes out of the closet and says, does this dress make me look fat, right? I mean, this is a classic thing. And you're like, uh, you, you better get that answer right, okay? And, uh, and so a little boy, uh, I read somewhere, so it was, a little boy was asked, how do you make marriage work? And he simply said, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she doesn't. <laughs> little boy figured that out, right? Um, seriously, man, okay? Be sure to compliment your wife about how good she looks to you, how much that outfit that she's wearing uh, you appreciate. Listen, if you don't compliment her, someone else will. And, 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 and so listen, you don't want your wife walking out the door uh, to go wherever she's going without having first been complimented by you. Because if somebody else notices that she looks good and she, they, they mention it to her, another guy in particular, uh, you don't want that to be the thing that she's remembering in the day. She's like, hey, whatever, thanks. I, I, my husband thought so too. That'd be a good line, by the way. Wife. Oh yeah, my husband thought so too. <laughs> so uh, the point is, don't, don't be sensitive to that, that, that desire in your wife uh, to, to be affirmed and, and, and adored. Notice verse seven. Tell me, Oh, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So here's uh, the, the Shulamite just desperately wanting to be with her lover all the time. I mean, that's kind of the way it is when you're engaged, right? You're dating or engaged. You just, you, you just always want to be together. And so she's wanting to be with him. And so he asks her where he's pasturing his flock so she can come and visit him on his lunch break. And uh, notice how her request here models purity because she didn't just want to come out looking for him in the fields and maybe be uh, mistaken for a prostitute wandering among the shepherds trying to drum up some business and and, and prostitutes in those days would wear a veil and that's what she's saying that she didn't want to have to do that. And then notice how he responds here. If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. By the way, notice he says, if you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women. He, every chance he gets, he's thrown in how beautiful he thinks she is, right? And, and again, I, I'm very important about how to talk. Um, and and uh, he's basically saying that Hey, take your goats and follow the other shepherds and you'll find me. Um, in other words, go about your normal business and you'll, and you'll find him. And, and again, I was, uh, on Wednesday night there's been a, a group of uh, college kids and it's been fun to kind of be addressing the, the, the married couples on Wednesday night with this book, but also uh, applying it to the college students that are anticipating, right, uh, getting married someday. And, and, and oftentimes their, their, their big fear is, well, how am I going to find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright? And they freak themselves out like, I'm never going to find him. You know, I, I live in Montgomery, Texas. Well, where am I going to get out of here and find the Mr. or Mrs. Wright, whatever, right? Uh, they start freaking out about that. Well, listen, as you fulfill your normal duties and responsibilities, listen, you'll be certain to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Why? Because that's the way God works it out, right? God's sovereign, and he puts you exactly where he wants you, and he puts uh, your, your future mate exactly where they, he wants them, right, so that you guys will meet. Um, and so the thing to remember as a young person, there's a handful of young people in here tonight, just remember that being the right person is more important than finding the right person. That's what you need to be focused on right now. Not finding the right person, being the right person. And trust me, God will provide you the opportunity to meet that Mr. or Mrs. Wright as you walk 
uh, with, with the Lord. I, I appreciate Tommy Nelson, an illustration that he used in his classic series in the Song of Solomon. He said, hey, listen, you just get out there and you run hard for Jesus and you just run, run for the Lord and then every once in a while just take a look to the left and take a look to the right and see if anybody's keeping up with you. And, and that might be your wife, or she might be your wife, he might be your husband. You're just out there running for Jesus, and you just look to the left or the right, and, and you're looking for somebody that's, that's not just a Christian, right? Young people, let's, not, let's get past the, the lowest common denominator. I just got to marry a Christian. And, and I'm going to see if they qualify as a Christian. And do you believe in Jesus? Yes, okay, we can get married. Well, well you don't want to just say, well, they passed the Christian test. No, you don't want just any Christian. You want a mature Christian. You want a growing Christian, Right? You want a running Christian. You don't want to have somebody that you're dragging along to church with you, right? You want them right side by side going, hey, let's, get a, let's go to church together. And so, again, this is important just to, to trust the Lord for his faithful provision of a spouse. Now look at verse 9 and 10. To me, my darling, you're like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. So here Solomon, again, is, he, he's, he's not having anything to do with this, with this self-consciousness of hers, the, the claims of her ugliness and her unworthiness. And so what does he do? He, he, he extols her beauty. He reassures her of how desirable that she is to him. And, and he makes her feel secure in his love. He wants her to know that he's absolutely crazy about her, that, that no one compares to her. This is the first of nine times that he calls her my darling, which is a, a beautiful term of endearment here that expressed his, his tender affection for her. Um, she calls him her beloved, and I think this is just a, a good reminder. If you don't have a, a, an endearing title for your spouse, you might want to find one, okay? Just, to, to, again, to sweeten up the conversation, to have, a, have, you know, we joke about it. Sometimes Kelly will say, hey, Ken. And I'm like, yes, Kelly. <laughs> it just seems weird, uh, you know. And our kids go, you know, because they're not used to us talking to each other in our, by our names. It's, hey, sweetheart, hey, hun, hey, babe, whatever. And all of a sudden, hey, Ken, hey, Kelly. Um, and so we kind of make fun of it. Um, but uh, I, I think you, you, you should probably have some endearing titles. It, it, again, it's to the point where you're saying your actual name sounds strange because uh, you rarely use those things. So, you know, babe, love, sweetheart, googly bear, coochie face, whatever, you know, you want to, uh, you might want to call him coochie face, but I just remember that from, from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Remember that? That little, the king and queen, little coochie face song. That was really funny. Um, anyway, he, he's, he, he's giving, and now notice, notice the huge compliment that he gives her here. By comparing her to a magnificent mare, he says, to me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, guys, before you Casanovas start comparing your lady to large farm animals, okay, <laughs> let, me, let me give you some instructions here, okay, because uh, this is uh, uncharted territory for most of us, all right? Don't be sitting there next time you're in a, you know, the romantic carriage ride down in Galveston and say, well, you know, honey, you remind me of that horse that's pulling this carriage. Uh, that's probably not going to go over as you expect it to. Well, Solomon said it, honey, and it, it, she liked it. Why don't you like it? Well, the Shulamite knew what Solomon meant by that. And, and we know from 1 Kings chapter 10 that Solomon was a connoisseur of horses. Among other things, he was a connoisseur of many things, but he was a connoisseur of horses which were very valuable in that day. And chariots, 
He says, my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Chariots were only pulled by stallions. You'd never hook up a mare to a, to a chariot. It was always the stallions. And so imagine the distraction and the commotion that would ensue if you walked a mare through a bunch of stallions hooked up chariots, right? If they, if they could whistle, they would. But they're stomping and snorting, and right? They're, the mare walks through. And again, he's just referring here to her unique beauty that drove him crazy, this, this picture of the, the mare would be more like a black beauty or the black stallion, right? These beautiful specimens, uh, these horses that are just unique and rare. And so uh, the king's horses were, were, were beautiful creatures and they wore elaborate bridles and headdresses bedazzled with all sorts of jewelry. And, and so he was just talking about her jewelry accent, accentuated her natural beauty. And the bottom line is, is that in Solomon's opinion, she had no equal. She was one in a million. No one compared to her. Proverbs 31, 29 says this, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. This is what the husband says, right? When, when, uh, when, when the kids get up, they rise from the table and bless their mother and they praise her. And then the husband chimes in and says, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. You're on a different level. Notice, Verse 12, while the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. So again, now the, the Solomon has been complimenting his wife-to-be. And uh, now she returns the compliment here by comparing her beloved to this bag of myrrh hanging between her breasts. And again, this is where those who allegorize and spiritualize the book of Song of Solomon say some ridiculous things like, you know, the woman's breasts represent the Old and the New Testament and the packet of myrrh is Jesus. And I mean, it's just weird. I'm like, are you serious? Uh, but that's kind of what they do with, with kind of, uh, we're not sure what to do with that, so let's make it into something else. Let's spiritualize it, right? And, uh, and so, well, what is she talking about? She's just simply talking about a literal package of myrrh, which was uh, a very special uh, perfume that was imported from Arabia, well, was to believe, believed to have these reviving qualities about it. And so they would put it in little bags or pendants and wear it around their neck. Uh, and, and, and it would just, it's kind of like an ancient deodorant, if you will, or a perfume. And uh, the fact that it laid between her breasts means really it was over her heart which was symbolizing the, the, the special place that he held in her heart. And so uh, she also mentions uh, this expensive, exotic perfume that she wore in his presence, which was derived from a plant native to the Himalayans, and, and it was high, in high demand as a love potion. And again, notice she's calling him beloved here. This is the first of 24 times that she calls him beloved. So my darling, my beloved, my darling, my beloved, my darling, my beloved. You get in the picture here, right, that they're sweet and kind and gracious, there's not a, a harsh word uh, expressed until you get to chapter 5, right, when they get in their little tiff uh, after, after their wedding night. So she, she compares him also here to, to a cluster of flowers found in, in, in Engedi, which is an, an oasis on the, on the western shore of, of the Dead Sea. We're going to see that. The group of us are going to, to Israel in a couple of weeks. We'll get a chance to go to Engedi. But the, the point here is that, that uh, he, she, he was like an oasis to her. Um, these flowers were unusually fragrant or highly valued. They, again, representing how she felt about him. Notice, returning the compliment, 
Verse 15, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your, R's, uh, your eyes are like doves. Again, he's complimenting her again on her, on her beauty, uh, particularly the beauty of her eyes, you know, those big brown eyes, right, or those big blue eyes. And um, the, the reference to a dove there uh, may be a, a reference to uh, her innocence, um, he may have been implying that her eyes revealed her inner beauty, her, her purity. Uh, I love what uh, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and 4, talking to, to wives here. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Women, by the way, that's what you want your man to be attracted to you most, uh, to, to most, is your heart, right? Because that's only going to get better as the years go on. If all they're attracted to is what you look like on the outside, you're going to be fighting a losing battle. Sorry to mention that, right? But that's just the way it is. So you want to, as you grow more and more beautiful on the inside, right, that's what you want your, your man to be attracted to. And, and guys, that's what we should be attracted to. Why? Because that's attractive to God. God looks past what our wives look like on the outside and he looks straight to the heart and and it says that it's beautiful, um, it's precious, a a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God and it should be also precious in our sight. If we're godly men, God-like men, right, that's what should be most attractive to us about our wives is what's going on on the inside. So again, Solomon used the words beautiful, to describe his, his true love at least 10 times here. And, and guys, again, just a reminder here, the repetitiveness of this, of this, of this song of songs, uh, I think, is intended to remind us that our wives can never hear enough how beautiful and how attractive they think th- that we think they are. Is that true, ladies? I mean, you could never get, that never gets old, right? You love to hear your husband say things to you, to affirm you. And, and to express their adoration of you. But listen, guys, make sure that you compliment them not just on their external beauty, but on their inner beauty. And this was a little joke that Kelly and I uh, uh, started when, when uh, I guess she didn't start it, I started it, but <laughs> we were uh, engaged in, in, in the first few years of our marriage. Uh, I, w- I would come up to her and I'd give her a hug and I said, you're pretty. I'd look at her and I'd say, you're pretty. And I'd say, on the outside too. Just to, just to let her know that it wasn't just about how she looked to me on the outside, but I, she was pretty to me on the inside. And, and I think that a wife needs to know that it, you're, it's just not all about the externals. Um, it's, it's about what's going on in their hearts. Notice again verse 16 and 17 here. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses, our cedars, our rafters, cypresses. Again, the, the Shulamite is, is now complimenting him back. See, I was going back and forth. One compliment uh, returned by another compliment uh, or followed by another compliment. And so she compliments her beloved for his rare combination of, of natural good looks and, and charming personality. Again, he too uh, has beauty on the outside and the inside. He, he's, he's not just uh, handsome, but he's pleasant. Um, he, he's a pleasant person. He, he's not a jerk. Uh, that's another way of saying that, I guess. Um, and, and she goes on to describe their, their bedroom, their luxurious bedroom, the, the holy place where God ordained for them to make love in a way that honors him. 
And she goes on in verse 2. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. And so she compares herself to a, to a common wildflower here. The, she, I'm just a crocus. I'm, I'm just a lily that, that grew in Sharon, which was on the fertile coastline there along the, the Mediterranean Sea where there was all sorts of brightly colored flowers. And, and she was implying that, hey, listen, there's nothing special about me. I'm like an ordinary wildflower. Well, Solomon wasn't going to have any of that, right? Notice verse 2. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So it's, it's as if he gets playful with her at this point. He says, fine, you think, you're, you think of yourself as a common lily? Well, I consider you to be a lily among thorns. He's not going to let her think that she's just a lily to him. She's a lily among thorns. You're a flower in the midst of a bunch of briars. In other words, you you stick out to me above all the rest. You're the only one worth looking at. You're you're the best-looking one of them all. Sometimes, again, I'll just just to encourage Kel, and just it's it's more playful than than anything. Is we'll get in the car after being at some event, and 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 we'll just be driving home, and I said, "Hey, you know what? You were the prettiest girl there tonight." You know, just to say something, just to encourage her. And it's not like I went around and said, okay, let me see. I'm going to compare every girl in here to, to Kelly. No, it, it was just, it's just uh, to a, a sweet thing that hopefully I say to her just to encourage her that, that I was thinking about her and, 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 uh, and, and, and I'm so glad that she's the one I'm taking home tonight, right? And um, I, I love uh, the book. I've mentioned it uh, a number of times in this series, the book that C.J. Mahaney wrote called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, which he dedicated to his wife. And in the dedication, this is what he said, when I see you in a crowd, you're the only one who appears in color. The rest of the world is black and white to me. You know that dude got some major brownie points for that, right? I mean, ladies love it when you, when you talk like that, right? And you mean it, right? So uh, that's the point that, that hey, that you stick out to me, you're, 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 you're something special. And, and again, now notice how the Shulamite responds to the tender talk of her beloved. Verse three, she, this is the, the Shulamite responding to that. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now an apple tree was a delightful surprise as you are walking through the forest. You're not expecting to see an apple tree, right? But it kind of stands out alone. And so, again, in the same way, he's saying, hey, you're a standout to me in a crowd. And she said, well, so are you. Like, you're like an apple tree in the midst of this forest, right, that my eyes automatically go to. You're something special. Um, and, and so, basically, he's saying, she's saying, you're a rare find. In a world full of men, you are a rarity, And again, because of all the adoring words that her beloved had spoken to her and all the ways he constantly built up her self-worth, she felt safe, she felt secure in the shade of his loving care and protection. It says, so my beloved among, uh, she says, in the shade I took great delight and sat down and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And notice what she's expressing here, she's longing to be physically intimate with him and give herself to him in unreserved abandonment. And again, guys, this is a good example of how we need to regularly express our love 
for our wives so they develop a sense of security, a sense of stability. They, they shouldn't always have to be wondering where they stand with us. It's like the, the wife who was sitting on the couch one day and her husband walked in and she was feeling, looking very sad and, and she, he says, what's the matter? And she says, do you love me? And he says, well, of course I love you. I told you I loved you when we got married and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> Don't be that guy, right? Uh, you need to be telling your wife not just every day, like multiple times in a day that you love her, right? Why? If your wife doesn't feel close to you mentally and emotionally, she's not going to desire to be with you physically. If you haven't figured it out, guys, okay, do the math, all right? If they don't feel close to you mentally and emotionally, they're not going to desire to be close to you physically. Again, Danny Aiken said this. He said, the simple fact is men and women are wired differently when it comes to the area of romance. For men, romance is highly visual. It is what they see. For women, romance is extremely relational and personal. It's what they feel. Men indeed are creatures of sight. They are moved more by what they see. Women, on the other hand, are creatures of the ear and of the heart. They're moved more by what they hear and by what they feel. And so all that to say, ladies, be generous visually with your husband. Um, If you know that that's how God wired your husband, be generous visually. But guys, if you know that God wired your wife's a certain way, you be generous verbally. Be generous verbally and and, and spend time talking with them um, uh, because bottom line is, guys, the most erotic part of a woman's body is her mind her mind. It's what's going on up here. Uh, C.J. Mahaney says it this way, in order for romance to deepen, you must touch the heart and mind of your wife before you touch her body. He said, this gentleman is a truth that can change your marriage. Nothing kindles erotic romance in a marriage like a husband who knows how to touch the heart and mind of his wife before he touches her body. Kelly, Kelly will joke with me from time to time and she'll say, hey, no talk, no touch. <laughs> no talk, no touch, right? Why? Because, hey, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? That you talk, you communicate, uh, and, and that leads to other things. But um, notice verse four. He has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Again, she's imagining again here uh, what it's gonna be like on their wedding night. Uh, a, a banner here, uh, he's referring to a mil- she's referring to a military banner, w- which was easily seen by the troops as they, as they marched. It, it would signify their location. It would also signify the possession. And so it was obvious to, to anyone observing their relationship that Solomon adored and cherished the Shulamite, that she belonged to him. And he made it very clear, oh, there was no hiding how much he delighted in her, how much he adored her, how much he doted on her. And as a result, look at verse 5, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples because I'm lovesick. She began feeling lightheaded. She needed to be sustained with food, like when you get low blood sugar, right? And you start feeling faint and, hey, get me something to eat here. And, and raisins and apples and the things she's mentioning here were common aphrodisiacs in those days, eaten to stimulate and, and enhance sexual desire. Notice verse 6, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Again, uh, the Shulamites uh, d- describing a very intimate position here where they're lying down together with, with one hand he has behind her head and the other wrapped around her waist. 
Now again, do you, do you see what's, what's happening here? Are you following the flow of the text and the flow of this relationship or this conversation, right? That, that, uh, that, that praise leads to passion. Verbal affirmation and adoration fuels romance. When you build up your spouse verbally, good things happen. And some of you guys might, you know, be listening to this tonight and, or maybe in times past when you've read through the Song of Solomon for your quiet time because I know some of you guys, you know, read Song of Solomon for your quiet, just kidding. But sometimes you, you know, read through this and, and uh, you know, you're thinking, man, I, I, I wish my wife was as hot to trot as this woman here. And, and, well, guys, put two and two together, okay? She was simply responding to the kind and gracious way that Solomon treated her and talked to her. She, she was like a flower opening up as she was a, exposed to the warmth and his tender love and his affection. I've told you the story before and I, I feel comfortable sharing it because it, it was a, a counseling case I had. It wasn't anybody in our church. It was, in fact, some, some friends of, of, of somebody in our church and years ago, they, uh, somebody came to me and said, hey, I've got this, this, this couple friend of ours and, and uh, they're not doing really good and I think they could use some counseling. Would you be willing to provide them some marriage counseling? I said, absolutely. And so... Um, this guy set up a, a meeting for me to meet with the guy, and so we went to lunch, and, and we were sitting there, and I said, well, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so said that, you know, uh, that you might uh, benefit from some counseling, and I said, would you tell me what, what, uh, what, what the problem is in your marriage? And uh, he, he came right out of the gate and said, I, I need you to uh, confront my wife that she is not fulfilling her physical duty to me according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. She's withholding herself from me. And I'm like choking on my salad, you know, as I'm, I'm like, this guy's not beating around the bush. He's getting right down to it, right? And I said, well, I said, well, why don't we get together and let me get to know your wife a little bit and we'll see how this thing goes. And so sure enough, we get together and probably met for several weeks. And, and uh, over the course of, of those uh, sessions, uh, she, this, this, this gal hardly said anything. Um, and he pretty much did all the talking. And, and so I was just trying to size up what was going on and just asking a lot of questions and and uh but i could tell even just in the few things she did say that she was a very godly woman and that she had a good grasp of scripture and she didn't need me to exposit first corinthians 7 about you know her body's not her own and she needs to be able to give herself to her she didn't need me to tell her that i could tell she already got that and so i was just trying to figure this thing out and so after a few weeks i just finally kind of in, in, in a moment of desperation i said hey I said to the guy, I said, if you could change one thing about your wife, what would you change? And he thought for a minute and he said, I wish she was more sensuous. And I was like, okay, let's close in prayer. You know, um, and, and, I, and I just quickly prayed for wisdom <laughs> to know how to respond to that. And I just said, hey, listen, I don't know your wife, but if she's wired like I think the way God wires women, okay, God created her to be a very sensuous creature. I said, but the reason why you're not feeling that she's very sensuous is because you're a jerk. And I said that to him. I said, you've been a jerk to her. I mean, you, you have not been living with her in an understanding way, 1 Peter chapter 3. You're, you're not cherishing her. You're, you're very prideful. You're very arrogant. You're very selfish. It's, it really just seems like this whole thing's about you and what she can do for you and how, you can, how she can serve you. And he just like sat back in his chair and goes, he said, 
man, you're rough. And then right after he said that, the wife said, I think he's nice. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those classic moments and the heavens opened and the angels began to sing and I was like, that's it. That's it right there. That, that's, you know, it was like in, insight. You know, God gave me insight and then insight into my own marriage and, and, and to other people's marriages. And that's it right there. Finally, she's thinking, somebody is telling my husband what, I, what I've been trying to communicate to him, but he wouldn't listen to me, right? There's a reason why I don't care to be with this guy, right? It's not that I know I need to be. I, the Bible makes that clear, but it's very hard when he's being the way he is, and it's no excuse. But, man, thank you for telling him, you know, what he needed to hear. And so, guys, listen, it, it's God wired our wives to be responders, to respond to us. And... Um, you know, you remember that great line in, in, uh, in, in Remember the Titans, that movie about the football team, right? And, uh, and, and the, the, the two players, the, the white guy and the black guy, were at odds with one another, and they were at it in each other's face. And, and, and one time the, other, the guy came up, the, the captain of the team came up to this black guy and said, man, man you got your attitude stinks. He's getting in the guy's face. Your attitude stinks out there. And the black guy looked up, he says, attitude reflects leadership, captain. Whoa, that, that's a tough line, right? And so not that you're ever excused, ladies, right, to just say, hey, listen, until you get your act together, you ain't getting nothing, right? I don't think that's ever right for you to have that attitude, right? But, but uh, at the same time, guys, listen, your wife's attitude is a huge reflection of your leadership or lack of leadership. And so, ladies, don't hold that over your husband's head, right? Um, but guys, step it up, right? If, you, if, if the shoe fits, wear it. And so ladies, ask yourself this tonight. Do, do you admire your husband? Do you admire your husband? And men, do you adore your wife? If I was to ask your wife if they feel adored, what would they tell me? If I were to ask your husband, does he feel admired, what would he tell me? That's really what it comes down to, right? Are you admiring your husband? Are you adoring your wife? Now, l- l- there's one more verse here we have to look at just as we wrap up because this really provides the conclusion to this opening section. Verse 7, the Shulamite says, I adjure you, I admonish you, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So here are the daughters of Jerusalem again, these, these uh, girlfriends of the, the betrothed here. Um, this, this engaged woman is, is talking to her girlfriends, her wedding party, and uh, this is the first of, of several charges to them to patiently wait for true love and to commit to stay sexually pure until marriage because uh, they're watching this whole thing. They're, they're witnessing all this and, and, and they're seeing this and, and, and so she's saying, listen, um, you know, this, what you're seeing is, is normal, it's natural, okay? Sexual desire between a man and a woman is not a sinful thing in and of itself. It's a God-given desire, but the only righteous expression of that God-given sexual desire is within the, it was in, within the context of, of, of a covenant relationship in marriage. God created sexual intimacy to be enjoyed in marriage 
by a husband, by a wife, for their own protection, right? Fire is a beautiful thing when it's where it belongs, right? You, you light a fire in the fireplace, and it's, it's wonderful, right? You sit by that thing, it gives you warmth, it's pretty to look at, and, and it's a wonderful thing. But, man, the spark jumps out of the fire, catches your curtains on fire, and next thing you know, your house is on fire, right? That's not a pretty thing. It causes great damage and destruction, and so that's the point. You've got to keep the fire in the fireplace, and that's sex in marriage. It gets outside of marriage, either before marriage or outside of marriage. Um, it's all, all it's going to do is cause a lot of damage and, and, and destruction. So don't ever start the fire outside the fireplace. Um, and so what she's saying is, hey, ladies, wait for this. Wait for this, girls. Don't. Don't uh, awaken love uh, before it's time. And again, I think this is a, a, good, um, a, a good place to, to remind uh, us as parents, right, that one of the responsibilities that God gives us in raising children is to have this talk with them, right? We need to say these kinds of, uh, of things to our, our kids, not just our daughters, but also our sons, right? To, to, to admonish them to not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. In other words, you need to set up some, some, some protective, you set up some boundaries, you need to set up some, have some, establish some convictions, right? That, that hey, you're going to wait till you're married to have sex, and, and we need to have that talk with our kids. And, and you need to set up some boundaries. And, and I'll never forget one of the sweetest uh, uh, moments with our daughter was, uh, I think, when she turned, I don't remember what, I think when she turned 13, uh, we took her out to a, a restaurant, Kel and I, and we sat her down and we had dinner together. And she really wasn't sure what this, what this was all about, this kind of one-on-one time with, with mom and dad. And then after dinner was over, uh, we were sitting there and I, and I had written out some, uh, some thoughts that I wanted to talk with her about you know, living in a, in a sexually immoral world and what that was going to be like for her as she grew up and the, all the temptations she was going to face and, 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 and then told her how, you know, God has made it very clear in his word that, that God had wanted her to save herself, right, for her husband someday and, and that, that he would be the only one that would ever be with her in a physical way and, and to kind of talk that through in 13-year-old language, right, and then gave her this little purity ring, uh, that we put on her finger uh, in the place you know, where her wedding ring will go someday. And we just encourage her. I said, honey, we want to give you this ring uh, to, to wear uh, until your wedding day. And, and the goal would be for you to be able to, to take this ring off, right, and give it to your husband and say, I kept myself pure for you. And then she, he can put the, the wedding ring on, on your, your finger. And uh, again, just something visual, um, you know, for your kids to think about, to pray about in the same way. This is a visual reminder, right? That, hey, we're married, we're taken, we're, not, we're off the market, we're not, right? This, it's a little ring, right, that, that your kid can wear. Uh, guys can get them too. And, and uh, again, I think it's just a, a good uh, possibility, a good potential conversation for you to have with your kids to help them uh, to fight um, against the temptations they're going to face to stand strong uh, and to stay pure until they get married and ultimately to look forward to this because this is what they'll miss out on, right, uh, if they give themselves away prematurely. And so, um, again, this is a great book to, to kind of talk through with your, your kids as well. So, anyway, I hope that was a helpful uh, message tonight and uh, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to, to apply it to our lives. Father, we just thank you for 
uh, how your word is, is, is so precious and, and so practical. And Lord, there's so much application here for us tonight. And I just ask that you would, again, bless these marriages. Lord, that you would help us to uh, really line ourselves up with uh, what we see in this book and that we would learn to communicate um, and to, to lovingly talk and, and, and care for one another with our words, Lord, that we would learn just, just if, if anything, never to be harsh again with our spouse and what we say or how we say something, Lord, that we would just be sweet and kind and tender. And Lord, I just know that that would go a long way in, in, in creating greater intimacy and harmony uh, in, in our marriages. And so help us, Father, by your Spirit. Lord, Satan loves to get a foot in the door uh, of marriages and, and to um, get us sideways with one another and, and really ultimately rob our joy as husbands and wives, the joy that you intended us for us to have in marriage, but also to destroy our witness for Christ and that our marriages don't reflect Jesus and the church the way that they're supposed to. And so we pray for your help to apply this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.